the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. It's been literally minutes since somebody mentioned 2020 to you, but don't worry, we're here to fill that void in your life and talk some more about bunkers. The annual convention of the International Bunkering Industry Association is perhaps not the uh, traditionally the highest profile event in the industry's calendar, but for some reason this year's shindig has attracted a bit more interest. So we sent our chief correspondent, Richard Clayton, and our man with 2020 vision, Anastasios Adamopoulos, to Copenhagen this week to find out what all the fuss was about. Thank you for joining us, gents. Hi, Richard. Thank you, Richard. Um, so how's Copenhagen? What's, uh, what's on the agenda out there for you guys this week? Well, coming so soon after MEPC, uh, I think there was a need to understand uh, the the key issues there. The fact that um, 2020, January the 1st, is uh, going to happen, which I think was a a signal that absolutely everybody needed to, to know. And the carriage ban is going to happen from March. So again, it's clarification. Having got those two points under our belt, we can now work work on. But as one of the speakers here was saying, it's not a 2020 issue. This is actually a 2019 issue, that if you haven't started to plan and you've got a, a program uh, of, uh, of implementation in process, you are going to be left behind. I think out of everything, that's what's come across to me. Mm. And which is which is fair enough and, and certainly not an unusual position to be holding but uh, given that it is in in Copenhagen where you know it is obviously very pro uh, 2020 they've been ahead of the curve in terms of arguing this for for some time and uh, judging by the reports you've been filing this week you know there's a lot of people in the room nodding their heads in agreement and saying yes uh, absolutely um a bit of a question of um, preaching to the choir perhaps uh, you know i get it looks like everybody who's there is uh, is already sorted but what about the rest of them um, yeah, maybe that is the case, <clears throat> but I feel even before the, the convention here, the attitude has changed, um, and I don't think it's a case anymore of we're just collecting a group of people who are you know like-minded on the issue. I think uh, it it does reflect a broader uh, sentiment that exists. Um, you know, we did hear a couple of voices uh, mention, you know, how, how is crew going to be able to manage the changes in time and is that possible uh so there has been some dissent but i Mm. think the overall mood here is that you know it's happening and let's get on with it and i think especially after the decisions at the mepc uh that's the more general sentiment across the industry with some obvious you know exceptions yeah but I mean, in terms of the fallout from MEPC, obviously, you know, we we, we saw a traditional IMO uh, sort of diplomatic solution to most of the, 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 the finer points of disagreement. But uh, fair to say that there's still a few issues lingering over those concerns of quality uh, or, or, you know, is the, the general consensus that that's now a bit of a side issue and this is now a question of just getting on with implementation? I think you you are right to raise those concerns. So quality and availability are absolutely key here. And I think a lot of shipping companies are or have been reluctant to invest in one technology or the other because they're just not convinced that their particular needs are going to be met. Um, When it comes to implementation, what uh, I've been hearing a lot about here is that every ship 
is different. You can't say, I'm going to have put scrubbers on all of my ships or I'm going to put all of my ships into distillates. Every ship is different and every owner now has to go through his or her fleet and decide what will be the best um, technology, the best fuel type, uh, the best places to bunker for, for each of those ships. There is no catch-all and this is when the hard work really starts. Uh, trying to understand what the options are and whether the, the the company is in a position to adopt one or other of these technologies. Mm. Well, you, you mentioned technology. I mean, uh, blockchain has been posted as the panacea to all ills and everywhere else. Uh, is, is there talk of blockchain helping here? So there, there was a, an interesting discussion on that um, today. And, you know, the, the whole idea of blockchain is adding transparency across any supply chain. And I think the issue with a lot of, the, of the, the fuel quality concerns is that people are in the dark about where the where the problem with the fuel arises, at which stage of the supply chain. Is it at the handling, the refinery? Is it further down the line upstream? Um, so, so the idea is that blockchain can help um, basically remove remove these problems and at least help people pinpoint you know this is where the 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 fuel was compromised and that in theory uh could help you know eradicate the the bad players so to speak from the market yeah. um so yeah so the, the, it's definitely been touted as something that could help um but again it's an issue of of proving to people that it's something worth investing in but perhaps, you know, with 2020 and, and what happened this year, you know, in Houston, uh, as we saw with the, uh, the large scale of contamination cases, um, this might this might pick up more steam than usual. And as you know, as a method that companies use to certify that that they've, you know, they've got quality fuel. Well, of course, I mean, this is the traditional sort of remit for, for IBIA and the, and the conference talking around issues of fuel quality and standardization, and it would have been on the agenda without 2020. But with 2020, I, I guess the, the concerns are heightened. And I, I guess the uh, the Houston issues that you mentioned, you know, where uh, several, uh, you know, I think it, in the hundreds uh, of vessels were, were hit by a contaminated batch of, uh, of fuel, you did rather sort of uh, expose the fragility of the um, fuel supply chain. Now, that's um, uh, an accusation that I guess Ibia and its members have, have sought to, uh, you know, to some extent bat away. But I mean, were there any discussions around the fuel quality issues and, and what happens next in terms of addressing those concerns? I think one of the comments uh, that was made is very uh, appropriate to this. Um, they were trying to look at each of the cases and say, does this have anything to do with 2020? Does it have anything to do with the switchover from mm. one type of fuel to another? Uh, and I think the jury is out. There is there is no understanding that it was definitely uh, a switchover issue. Yeah. In fact, it came back to, to bite us, actually. They were saying the media... Uh, is sniffing a story and is running with you know a panic situation and that has created its own problems because ship owners are now saying I don't really want anything to do with this if there's a danger of having uh, bunkers that are bad uh, so perhaps we ought to look at the way we are reporting this subject and perhaps be perhaps stand a couple of steps back 
Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, I've been blamed for many things in my life. Some of them I will hold my hands up to, but uh, the fuel quality and uh, the ability of the industry to organise itself in a um, sufficiently robust manner uh, doesn't really feel like it's uh, sitting on the doorstep of the press to be able to uh, be held accountable for that sort of thing. But I take the point, and I th- would say that certainly, uh, you know, in terms of Lloyd's List reporting, um, you know, accuracy and uh, authority uh, comes hand in hand with uh, the the intelligence that we're getting from the market. So if we are reporting awkward things for them to uh, talk about that is very much what we are supposed to be doing mm. so uh, j- just to add to that um you know I, I was in a discussion and someone from veritas petroleum services which is a a fuel testing and inspection company was speaking and they, they were talking about houston um and they mentioned that they invest there you know they've been investigating over around or over 50 vessels that were contaminated mm. um and they were saying that Obviously, the fuel was not from a single supplier. You know, they mentioned there were 10 suppliers and 20 different barges. So their initial uh, investigation showed that the problem appeared upstream somewhere. So way before it got down to the ship or the supplier. Um, But that's an initial suggestion. But what what I want to point out with that is that these problems can occur anywhere across uh, the supply chain. So it is quite difficult to point out you know, that it is sulfur cap related or that it's blending related or anything like that. Well, in, in the event of a difficult conversation, if in doubt, just blame the press. It seems to be a fairly easy guess. <laughs> well, listen, gents, um, thank you very much for the update. Uh, I look forward to further uh, reports coming from uh, Copenhagen before you uh, head home. But uh, safe travels back to London and thanks for joining us. Thank, thank you, you, Richard. The plan for Mexico's first terminal for exporting LNG has taken a big step forward by signaling agreements to use all of the plant's production, stealing a march on some of its US rivals. The announcements come as several companies are working on plans to develop new export plants along the Gulf of Mexico, across the coast of the US, meaning that competition is hotting up, just as LNG rates are generally higher than post-Fukushima levels, driven by additional LNG exports. All in all, LNG is looking like a very exciting market indeed. I'm very pleased to say that joining us to discuss the uh, latest developments on the US side are our two relatively new U.S. correspondents, Eric Watkins in uh, Los Angeles and in uh, Boston on the East Coast, Mark Fuchek. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, nice to be here. Um, well, let's start with you, Mark. You've been following this Sempra story. Um, now, give me the uh, give me the quick overview in terms of why this is so significant in your eyes. Uh, well, the uh, shipping rates are, you know, extremely high, up to 170,000 a day at the moment. And... Um, the main export market is Asia. The Gulf takes about 22 days to get there. From the West Coast, it can be down to as little as 10. So um, there was, last month, there was a terminal in Canada opened up on the West Coast, and this is the first one in North America's southern half. Uh-huh. So it um, kind of opens up a new, faster route to Asia. It's not a big project, uh, 2.5 million tons per year by 2023. It's phase two could hit about 14.5. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Gulf, there's a number of projects coming on that are that size or much larger. So um, it's a small percentage, but it definitely opens up a new route to Asia. So that's what makes it interesting. Mm. And 
Eric, there, there is real uh, interest in this market growing across the US. Uh, you know, f- frankly, if, we, if we're not talking to anybody about uh, 2020 at the moment, the next hottest topic at the moment is LNG. Uh, are you talking to people in the market? What's, what's, what's the general feeling around LNG? Bit of a buzz? Well, I think that the, um, the focus is, is on the excitement about the opening up of the Pacific for US exports of LNG or even Canadian exports exports of LNG anyway from North America going across the Pacific. This is actually a very, very exciting moment. Um, It's a very exciting moment because the U.S. is is actually the the situation is very simple. A few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, the U.S. was looking to build a lot of import terminals up and down the U.S. West Coast. Uh, That is to import LNG. But as a result of the fracking revolution, that whole process now is reversed. Mm. The U.S. is in a position where it doesn't have to import LNG anymore. It can begin exporting it. And uh, as Mark pointed out, most of the exports have been taking place down in the U.S. Gulf. Um, And the question is how to get gas LNG out to Asia. Well, it comes through Panama and and so forth. But the SEMPRA setup and the um, LNG Canada setup in, um, in Kitimat, Canada, these are both on the West Coast. And as Mark pointed out, that cuts down the shipping time considerably, more than half. Plus, there aren't any uh, duties going through or fees going through the Panama Canal. So the shipping should be a lot less. Mm. And, I mean, in terms of uh, the uh, U.S.-Sino trade war that's, that's breaking up, I mean, we are, you know, we, we're not expecting any sort of immediate impact in terms of LNG, but, you know, there, there, there has been some concerns raised, I think, in terms of the potential that it could hit. It doesn't seem to be dampening down the, the general sentiment that long-term LNG still look good, though. Uh, that's true. I mean, there is rapidly growing demand, and... The U.S. has the supply, so it's probably going to get there. One project did get delayed last week. Uh, Magnolia LNG delayed mm. its final investment decision, saying it was having trouble finding buyers in China. Um, for most of these terminals, that is the target market, but it's the only one so far that's delayed. Um, other projects we know have long-term contracts already. Um, Tellurian CFO actually downplayed this, saying, uh, you know, it is – the Gulf is the low-cost producer, so it's going to remain competitive. The other aspect of this uh, opening up of the West Coast, uh, it does invite trans-Pacific trade, but of course it also invites uh, trade right up into the U.S. itself um, or down from Canada into the U.S. Mm. Uh, that, that fits in with uh, IMO 2020 and the turn by some companies to LNG as their fuel of choice. And one of the main companies out here that's, that's doing that is uh, a group called PASHA, P-A-S-H-A. Uh, PASHA Hawaii Transport Lines is one of their um, uh, carriers. They have others that go back and forth between Hawaii and the West Coast. They have uh, two ships that are um, being built for them down at Keppel in Texas. And PASHA has announced that they're going to be running on LNG. Mm. So when this announcement came, people wondered, well, where on earth are they going to source all of this LNG? Because there are no LNG bunkering facilities on the U.S. West Coast to speak of. So this development and the one in Canada mean that this now could begin to take place. There could be LNG facilities set up uh, from uh, exports out of Canada and exports out of Mexico into the U.S. West Coast. So the market extends from you know, shore to shore across the Pacific. 
Mm. Which is a, a rapid turnaround from even a few years ago where realistically the bunkering facilities for LNG were limited to you know set routes and in some of the Scandinavian government uh, funded facilities where you know effectively there were uh, ferry routes and, uh, and LNG was a, a short sea option. The fact is we've now got um, CMACGM um, going uh, large in terms of uh, LNG fueled uh, container ships. We've got a number of other projects that have been uh, tipped to be uh, LNG fueled and the fact that we're even talking now about this massive acceleration of LNG bunkering across the west coast of the US is, is very encouraging that we're actually going to see an acceleration of that. Yes, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. And But then there's another thing that we may want to consider, which is that uh, the what I'm going to call the IMO 2050, which is going to be the new kinds of uh, emissions controls that come in. Although um, LNG does wonders for the... Um, sulfur, uh, reducing sulfur, it doesn't do anything for greenhouse gases. So there's, there's perhaps a 25-year window where these LNG um, production and consumption and the rest of it for ships will be useful. After that, we don't know. Yes, I rather think that the uh, the 2050 deadline might become a little bit more topical after we've got 2020 out of the way, but it does seem to be a moment being pushed down the agenda. Uh, frankly, I still think that, you know, compared to 2020, um, to, uh, you know, which will be seen as a minor administrative blip, the, uh, the prospect of reducing uh, carbon emissions from shipping by 50% by 2050 is going to be something of an epoch shift that the industry is going to struggle with significantly, even with LNG. But uh, I think it's fair to say that it will certainly be a significant part of the solution. Um, but going back to, to more short-term um, uh, you know, forecasts, um, I mean, we've, I've been talking to analysts this week, and, and they were saying that um, spot cargoes for LNG were, were totaling around uh, 1,000 last year, which itself was a 70% rise on the, on the previous year. But we're looking at you know, possibly hitting about 1,300 cargoes this year. That's another 30%. It's a rapidly growing uh, spot market, and that's uh, what's making a lot of these U.S. Um, uh, projects that much more interesting. You know, previously, LNG was just an energy train. You, you, you set it up with uh, you know, serious investment, usually at a government level, and it would go from point A to point B over a set period of usually decades because it was so expensive to build. But we're genuinely seeing the emergence of an LNG spot market. Uh, you know, more liquid, uh, you know, in both senses of the term. And that is very interesting in terms of the prospects for this to grow even further than we're seeing it now. Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. In the old days, as you point out, it was usually um, a huge investment. It was usually a 20-year uh, contract that was set up between a buyer and a seller. And it involved the, the buyer actually investing in the project to guarantee that they would take the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, sorry, take the cargoes. Hmm. Um, going to the spot market opens up everything for everybody. It becomes a, a market that anyone can play in at any time. It's it's really terrific, strong, hmm. strong market. So, I mean, the final thoughts. I mean, energy carriers I mean, obviously remain the big ticket investments. But, uh, Mark, I think you've written about this. I mean, in terms of actually building LNG ships, you know, these are, these are, these are not something you can go and pick up at the supermarket. You know, we're talking how, how long to turn round one? Uh, about two to three years. Okay. 
Uh, so, I mean, given that, you know, two to three years in any market is even, even a, a nice one filled with positivity like this is, is, is still one hell of a bet. The sentiment for investing, do you think we're going to see, um, you know, oversupply, undersupply? What's, what's the sort of general feeling that you're getting in terms of covering this uh, sector at the moment? Uh, in terms of supply, the, the IE actually wrote last week that shipping demand may overtake supply in 2023. Mm-hmm. If new orders don't go on the book, at the moment, um, vessel capacity looks pretty flat for the next two years and a slight boost in 2022-23. Um, yeah, two to three year lead time. So if you're going to invest in it, you have to be confident of the market in three years and not the market today. Um, it's a lot of money. It's a long time. So, yeah, there's not that many people who can do it. We will see. We will see. Um, listen, guys, thank you very much uh, for uh, your debut appearance on the Lloyd's List podcast. I'm uh, sure it will be the first of many. But uh, for now, um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having us.